have you seen me dice bag? <laughs> the Grognard Files. Hello, my name is Dice, Dirk the Dice, and this is the Grognard Files, for your eyes only. Talking bobbins about tabletop RPGs from back in the day. I'm coming live from a secret safe house somewhere in Bolton, the UK. I'm on the run, between locations, a moving target. I'm surrounded by my stuff, packed in sealed containers and a zipped up sports bag is my great library of RPGs and my grognard files. Thankfully, I still have my ridiculous homemade shrine to the actor Caroline Monroe. I'll just give it a little tap. Ah yes, uh, a gold lame bikini and death in her eyes. She's Naomi, the vicious assassin from The Spy Who Loved Me. It can only mean one thing. The featured game of this episode of The Grognard Files is the TSR classic Top Secret. An espionage role-playing game for three or more players. This is the first in what I'm going to refer to as our spy sequence planned over the next year. It will be followed by Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes, the James Bond role-playing game and Knight's Black Agent. Inside this episode, I'll try to explain how our overly complicated audience participation will mean that you can choose a game to feature in an actual play. It's extremely complicated, but more about that later. I love the potential of RPGs that feature elements of espionage. I like the sleight of hand involved in tradecraft. I like the possibilities of narratives that weave in real-world events and locations. And I like the purity of a mission-based structure and the unambiguous chain of command as a means of motivation. Over the years, I've used elements stolen from espionage and intrigue stories to spice up my swords and sorcery and horror games. So, before we get into that, I've had uh, another iTunes review. Uh, please do take the time to write one, as it uh, sticks our cockles in the microwave for a reassuring ping. For me, what makes this podcast truly special is the way it candidly shares personal experiences with games mixed with solid information on the games. I also love the presenters spend time it takes to examine issues and products in detail rather than hurrying along. Many thanks for your outstanding work. Thanks for that, DJ Peterson 23662. It's appreciated. Good to know that we're striking the right balance for you. We've covered the big ones, the ones that we've played often, but as uh, Rick Mint said in the previous episode, in the early 80s, games were coming out all of the time, and it was difficult to settle on one game. There were lots of games that we played once or twice, alongside the regulars, RuneQuest, Traveller and Stormbringer. Top Secret was one of those occasional games. In this one-part episode, 
we open the box on the game to reminisce on our earliest experiences playing the game. We also reflect on Espinar's games in general and how they've influenced our gaming group, the Armchair Adventurers. There's a brief potted history of this unusual and intriguing game before our resident rules lawyer, Judge Blythe, turns his attention on the finer points of the rules. I think he overrules me on a couple of occasions on this one. I've uh, done a quick overview of the coverage of Top Secret in Dragon Magazine and some of the rules editions that appeared in it. We're also introducing a brand new section to the Gragnard Files. Starburst Memories is an examination on how film and television has influenced our gaming experience. In a future episode, we've promised to look at Robin of Sherwood, the hooded man. Dum dum. But here we look at a couple of our favourite spy movies, and I try to explain that overly complicated audience participation thing I mentioned earlier. Please bear with me with that one. And the final section covers the details of our other projects and also a foretaste of what's coming next time. So, ramblers, let's get rambling. Open box! Welcome to Open Box, the section of the Grognard Files where we come together and look back to our earliest encounters of the RPG under discussion and reflect upon our own personal heritage with the game as if it really matters. Um, For this occasion, I've reconstructed the uh, bedroom of our friend uh, Simon. Uh, And uh, over there in the corner, Against the radiator, clutching a tiny ball of crisp. It's Blythe. Hello, Blythe. Hello, Dirk. What are you doing down there? I'm, I'm eating these crisps that Simon <laughs> generously uh, offered me in a tiny bowl. They were in a tiny bowl, weren't they? They were in a tiny Never bowl. Never Yeah. So, um, Simon, who uh, was one of our earliest uh, players, um, he was the games master for Top Secret. And uh, Top Secret was Simon's game. And we would come into his bedroom and he would make us sit next to a radiator on the floor while he was in an elevated position on a chair. Yes. <laughs> yeah. we, we'd be there like Terry Waite. <laughs> well, well, I was looking back on it. There's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of psychological stuff going on there, isn't there? Yeah. <laughs> just sit on the floor with a very small bowl of crisps. Between just, us. Just enough crisps to make you want more. And uh, he also had a handmade uh, pyjama case in the shape of a green cat. He did, didn't he? I think he saw that. It was like a bit Bride's Head Revisited, wasn't it? You know, the well, character with the teddy bear in Bride's Head Revisited. There's a bit it. of that, so I think it gave him a sense of being slightly upper class, although it infuriated him when we put it on our head and said, look at me, I'm David Crockett. Yeah, which we did on <laughs> Which we did on frequently. <laughs> Top Secret just appeared from nowhere. Well all, his, well, all his games did. I yeah. think that was the odd thing about it, that we would go to Games Workshop and look at games and buy games and talk about getting games and what have you. Um, but they just appeared, didn't they? Yeah. You, you know, Top Secret, and he had, he had gangbusters as well, didn't he? Yeah. Um, and they, they, they just appeared from nowhere, and I thought, where did he buy them from? Yeah, because we were with him a lot of the time. and um... yeah, I don't think he had trips to, to games workshop on his own. They just, they just appeared, didn't they? So whether he bought them in mail order, we didn't like to ask. I don't no. know why. But we didn't, it, it felt rude to say, where the hell have you got this from? 
as if he wasn't allowed to buy, as if he wasn't allowed any. Which he wasn't. Any he wasn't really. He wasn't allowed any autonomy. You know, we, we, we got him into role-playing games, therefore he had to do what we wanted. Yeah. You know, no, but it was in a bad light. <laughs> but I think he used to have, as well, he used to have a lot of um, uh, war games, didn't he? So Avalon Hill war games. Yeah. I, I remember um, several afternoons playing uh, Pay Dirt, which was a kind oh, of yeah. reconstruction of American football. American football's bad enough, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it's controversial. But playing it with little... Uh, play, pay Dirt yeah. was like a, a playing with little tiny cards. Mm. Um, and you'd like do a whole season. Yes. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Oh, it was like with without any of the fun. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so that's uh, American football, isn't it? It's like football without any of the fun. (laughs) So I've got here um, um, the box, the uh, box of uh, Top Secret. And uh, here's something of not. This isn't the original box. I got this one um, from uh, Shop on the Borderlands. Mm. And, but, but, I didn't get a dice with this when I got the box out. But I have the original dice. I have the original dice because... You know, remember mid eighties um, we had like Swapperama. Oh yeah, 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 just get rid of stuff. Yes, yeah. I ended up with um, Top Secret. I don't know where it went. It probably just got cleared out when my mum cleared them yeah. all out. But I've got the dice. I've got the original dice. The original it? dice. Um, and it, it's twenty sided D ten. Do you remember when they were twenty? Oh yeah, I've got one of those. Yeah, yeah. They're odd things, aren't they? Because it's a D twenty, but it goes from one to. One to zero or zero to nine, yeah, twice, doesn't it? That's it. Yeah. So you get that with it, and uh, you get the rule book, and uh, you get an adventure. And we actually played this adventure. Mm. Um, it's um, Shrek and Harlan Stella, um, in there, and essentially it's a dungeon. <laughs> it's dungeon. a dungeon, James yeah. Bond style dungeon. James Bond style dungeon where uh, Eastern Europeans play the part of orcs. And um, it wouldn't surprise you to uh, uh, learn that this is full of tables, full of encounter tables. So uh, Shrek and Harland Stella, it was a, a site in Germany where East and West would meet. And um, essentially it's a play characters just go through the town just killing everybody really I mean, oh, that's... We did. I don't remember did we do that probably did didn't we we did because um, I specifically remember us uh, it's got the thing about a magic carpet on here mm, I remember that we were given a series of um, we were given a series of uh, information of intel that could have been red herrings yes that's or right. could have been facts mm. so part of the shtick is that you don't know what's real and what's not. Yes, and, yes. Um, so when you went into place, I think we went into a laundrette, didn't we? Was it a laundrette or a... Or a yeah, it might have been a laundrette. And we asked, you, you asked for a magic carpet. I asked for a magic carpet. And we went to his rigmarole with Simon, where Simon said, oh, really, you're going to ask for a magic carpet? And we said, yes. And he went, really, really? And looked at us like we were stupid. But of course, that was the code word. And you got taken to the back, weren't you? Yeah. Down in an elevator into some underground base or something like that, wasn't yeah, it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right. I remember that. Yeah. I think we got frustrated with the game, though, because I seem to remember that um, we had a bit of, you know, that thing where games masters kind of fall out with the players. I seem to remember that. I don't know whether we'd put the pyjama case on our head and... <laughs> Said we were David Crockett. Yeah. yeah. We might have done. <laughs> but I remember us um, ending up in prison or something... Um, 
Yes, I think we we ended up in a in a prison in Czechoslovakia. Before before we leave uh, uh, Shrek and Harlan Stella, I want to give you an example. Okay. Of uh, some of the encounters that you might okay. get in here. Yeah. To give you an idea of the flavour of it. Yeah. Right? Okay. A midget disguised as a child. <laughs> will, will bounce a rubber ball towards the others to catch. If bounced or tossed back. She will approach and try to give a hundred dollar bill. Okay. Are you going to take it? Is this a spy game or a David Lynch film? <laughs> What's going on? I think I vaguely remember this now. I think this is one of the reasons we fell out with him. Yeah. It, it was a bit weird. I wanted to be James Bond and I say I felt like I was Agent Cooper in Twin Peaks. If you don't give them a parcel or some object in return, yeah. you realise that it's not the right contact. Okay. And then we'll then try to... Uh, recover the money by kicking you in the shin with a razor tip oh, shoes. Oh, that's a dad. They didn't nick that, haven't they, from James Bond, haven't they? <laughs> they inflict one hit of damage per kick and are coated with um, arsenic poisoning. Uh, 39, 45, 24, 100, 105, 101, stroke, 103, 101, 103, stroke 6. Is that a code? Is that a secret code? <laughs> or is it a table to be rolled on? I, I think that's the stuff. So it's not a secret code. I think that's one of the reasons that we, we didn't get along with it then, because uh, there were lots of things like that that felt, <laughs> just felt a bit weird. And you didn't, co- I think, I think in, in fairness to Simon and in fairness to us, it's that thing again that we come back to time and time again when we discuss games, isn't it? That we were quite young, I mean, we were probably 13 or 14 years old, weren't we, when we played this. And... Some of the subtleties might have been lost on us. Okay. Fast forward to now, right? To okay. this to this day. And I said to you, right, I really want to run an espionage game. Yes. Right, okay. Would you go for it? Because I only, the only reason I asked that is mm. because I, I I think it has to be said that I'm more enthusiastic about playing spies and espionage yeah. Yeah. games. Um than you and Eddie. I feel, yeah. I feel rightly or wrongly, that you kind of humour me when it comes to uh, doing that. Well, I, the, the thing with espionage as a genre is that, I mean, it's true of any genre, isn't it? But maybe more so when it comes to espionage, is that there's, there's different sub-genres of it, isn't there? I mean, there's, it depends what you mean, doesn't it? James Bond is one thing. Tinker Tailor Soldier Spy is another yeah, uh, you know Har- uh, Michael Caine as uh, Harry Palmer, but if, is another I'd, Jason Bowen is another. They're all in that kind of area, but they're all in some ways very different in the way that they played out. I know? still, th- I still think though that even if I pitched um, to you and Eddie, mm. and I have done, haven't I? Because with uh, Knights Black Agents, I pitched to you the idea that. It's in a modern day contemporary setting, mm. yeah. and we're gonna you're gonna play super spies in a like Jason Bourne. It, I don't it, it, I don't see the same thrill in your eyes as if I said I've got um, an eighteen month campaign which you'll play <laughs> um, a wizard moving through a fantasy realm. Have you? <laughs> Have you got one of those? I haven't got one of those. I've got Nice Black Agents, uh, Dracula Dockers. Well, Nice Black Agents is all right, but again, you're cheating slightly there because I suppose, I, I mean, I, I'm kind of supporting your argument a little bit. Nice Black Agents is appealing because it's got vampires in it. 
So it's not quite pure espionage, is it? No. And I think you could be right. I, I, I'm a little bit cold on the... I'm sort of setting myself up here now, aren't I? So <laughs> I'm always admitting I don't really like spy role-playing. But, but then again, I, I don't know if we ever played a good game of espionage role-playing. I don't, I don't know if we have, because I think... I, I know what you're saying, but then we've played games, we've played fantasy games, we've played games of RuneQuest, we've played games of D&D, we've played fantasy games, which have had an element of espionage in it. Yeah, we've had we've had. Um, I mean, for example, you know, we did a. It's, it's not quite espionage, but it, but it's in the same ballpark. You know, we've done detective stuff in Paris, haven't we? Years ago, when we were young, yeah. we did that. Uh, we did one that you did about a serial killer in Room Quest called Basilisk. You know, yeah. so named that anyone who saw him or her never lived to tell the tale. That was a little bit espionage in terms of you know you don't know who to trust. Those elements of espionage things that are appealing, aren't they? You know, who to trust, deceiving people, you know, not being honest with all that. All that stuff can be there in fantasy games or science fiction games or any game, can't it? And I think this is the problem that what you're talking about is a system, a game system, purely revolving around the the genre of espionage, which is slightly different. See, I don't think. I mean, I think that kind of um uh, proves what I, I I feel, and that's that. Um, spies are not really a genre, are they? Espionage isn't really a genre. Well, but, yeah, but yeah. I don't think it. Of, I don't think it. I don't. I think that's part of the difficulty. And when we come to looking a bit more, that's part of the difficulty. I mm. think it's more of a style than a type. If you if you see what I mean. So you can get a style of. Uh, like you said, in fantasy setting, you can get a, a style yeah. of uh, yeah. espionage. Yeah. What Top Secret does is, and um, its key selling point um, early on, it says that this is uh, the first modern role-playing game yeah. set here in, in, in the, the here and now. now. Yeah, 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 yeah. Set in the eighties with the Cold War and all yeah. that kind of stuff going. Yeah, on. yeah. And those kind of conspiracies. Yes. And I find that that's the bit that's the hard sell. You know, the setting, mm. unless it's in a fantastic setting, um, having that kind of contemporary world is always difficult to sell. Well, yeah, but then we live in that anyway, don't we? You, you know me, if I can't be a wizard, I'm not happy. <laughs> <laughs> I, I think you've got a point, I think. Yeah, so it's not really espionage that you're talking about, is it? Because you, you can have that in lots of games. You can have espionage. You could be a spy in RuneQuest, couldn't you? Yeah. You know, you could be a spy in Traveller. You could be a spy in any game and, and build in all those elements of espionage and, and develop a plot where there's not a shot fired, but it's all about, you know, infiltration and deception and that kind of thing. I think, you know, you, you could do it in Call of Cthulhu, couldn't you? You could infiltrate some cultists as a spy. Yeah, that'd be a good story. That'd be exciting, but yeah, I suppose you're right. The thing that me and Eddie tend to be a bit cool on is the idea of setting it in the absolute here and now, in a kind of real setting where there's no element of fantasy whatsoever. Yeah, that's what you're saying, isn't it? Yeah, and what Top Secret does is that it's it's not fantasy. I mean, you could say it's fantasy in terms of the things it talks about are not really how it works, you know. Yeah. But it's still set in the real world. And you're right, it does, I mean, we might be corrected by people listening, but it does feel like 
it's the first real world role playing game. Yeah. You know, and that is a bit of a hard sell, isn't it? Because I suppose even at the time in the eighties, you know, you had games where you could be a space pirate or a wizard or a whatever else and then someone comes along with where well, you can be a spy. Yeah, and I, I just think it's important to make that point because I mm. think that'll set the context for when we look at the rules, that yeah. it's in the context of trying to, it's a hard sell. Yeah, it is a hard sell, yeah. 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 Take it from me. Yeah, I do, <laughs> do frequently. <laughs> Maybe I should adopt uh, Simon's approach and just appear with... Uh, just appear with a game. And, a game. Yeah, yeah, we're playing it. this. Yeah. I think that kind of, I, I only mentioned that because I think that, Puts the line in the sand for when we uh, <laughs> line in, the sand. In, in the uh in, in the metaphorical sand as we uh, mm, discuss yeah. the rules. Mm. I don't know, do you realise it's thirty five years on? Mm. So that means that our uh, our uh, play characters will be released. They would have been released, so we could have another game with them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think we should. I think we should. Yeah, go on. Then. <laughs> You can you convince me. You finally won me over. I can re- <laughs> bring that character back, even though I can't remember his name or anything about him. Potted history. On the seventeenth of January, nineteen eighty, two FBI agents arrive at TSR's downtown Lake Geneva offices. They're investigating a tip-off of an assassination plot in Beirut, Lebanon, of one William Weatherby. The agents have in their possession a piece of headed notepaper that has led them to the TSR offices. It's a series of notes made by Mike Carr, TSR's production manager, for an in-house top-secret game that is running. A well-meaning Lake Geneva resident found the cryptic piece of paper and handed it over to the authorities, as any upstanding citizen would do. This apocryphal tale was often quoted back in the day as a mark of the authenticity of Top Secret, the role-playing game. In the opening blurb, the game declared, in the last several years there have been quite a few role-playing games produced, covering subjects as diverse as bunnies and bugbears, musketeers and mutants, even spacemen and cowboys. Most of these games are quite good but there's an era missing today no one has come up with rules for modern role-playing game not set in the hazy future or the dim past but the crystal clear world of the here and now well it's a bold claim a claim that's possibly challenged by SBI's Dallas RPG based on the uh, soap opera Nevertheless, Top Secret was the first modern age RPG that found an audience and was incredibly popular on its release. Not bad for a game that originated in a sophomore dorm. Merle Rasmussen was 18 when he first encountered D&D as a student at Iowa State University where he was reading civil engineering. He enjoyed war games and diplomacy and D&D attracted his attention. After a couple of games, he was struck by the potential of the concept of role-playing. He wasn't too bothered about the fantasy, but he saw it as an opportunity 
to play out some of his interests in espionage serials such as The Avengers or The Man From U.N.C.L.E. He took on the role of both games master and player character and referred to himself as The Administrator as he pitted his wits against his roommate who took on the persona of James Pong Thompson, an assassin with a really big gun. Merle would set up sessions and missions and James Pong, a ruthless sadist, would compete against his characters, breaking into the administrator's block, stealing his secrets, assassinating his characters. It became a man-on-man conflict, spy versus spy. His roommate suggested that he write up the game and send it to TSR. They gave the name the working title of Spy World, named after Gamma World, TSR's post-apocalyptic fantasy, published in 1978. The handwritten rules were submitted and eventually returned to him, with the hand-scrawled message, Once this is typed, accept this manuscript. The scroll was signed by none other than Gary Gygax himself. He sent his rough manuscript to the typist, including uh, one that had to quit because of a duck bill infection at the National Disease Laboratory in Iowa. Ducks, they're always involved. Eventually, the manuscript was submitted, accepted, and Rasmussen signed his first writing contract with TSR. It was Mike Carr who gave it the name Top Secret in 1978 and gave the instruction that a module be bundled into the box set. Mill was handed the Hill Giant Chief module and was asked to create something like it, but for espionage. At this time, Rasmussen had only a very sketchy understanding of RPGs. His only experience were those dorm room games of D&D. The early iteration of the rules had the games master or administrator as one of the player characters, like his early games. The module Rasmussen developed was Shrek and Harlandstella, the place where the East and West met during the Cold War. When the game was eventually published in 1980, it proved a great success with an initial print run of 10,000 copies selling quickly. Thanks to this success, Rasmussen joined TSR as a staff writer and contributed to the basic D&D line, the solo books, as well as Boot Hill and Star Frontiers. And he produced a top-secret companion in 1985 to satisfy the desire of players to have more and more stats for guns. The companion also provided some background material to support character generation, that's lacking in the final edition of the rules. By 1986, he was off the staff working as a technical writer for Human Resources when he sold the rights to his work to TSR. They produced a significant revision of the game written by Rasmussen's former colleague Douglas Niles, Top Secret SI, SI standing for Special Investigation. It provided a, a richer, more detailed background for adventures, more detailed car chase rules and different professions or classes for player characters 
and the more slick art direction. Rasmussen was outside of the gaming industry for years before returning to play Top Secret again in 2014, reconnecting with the hobby and running Top Secret to adoring fans and new players. He's currently developing a new espionage game, code name Acrid Harold. If you search hard enough, you'll find a playtest actual play podcast online. In this updated game, he tackles the global uncertainties of the world post-war on terror. Look out for it on a personal server, because you never know when the feds might come knocking. Just buy the rules! Welcome once again. You join us in a discreet location in London's Mayfair, an exclusive gentleman's club where the great and good gather to network through the means of waggling, waggling the old school tie in return for favours. Joining me from my alma mater is Judge Blythe. Uh, he's a so-called judge sitting here with his talisker and single ice cube made from the waters of the Western Isles. Hello there, Judge Blythe. Hello there, Dirk. Okay. Well, I'm just waggling the tie. What do you <laughs> want to say, then? It's not that kind of gentleman's club. Not that kind of gentleman's club, no. <laughs> Today, we've got together to discuss um, the finer points of the game mechanics of Top Secret, an espionage role-playing game for three or more players, okay? So what are your overall thoughts, uh, Judge Blythe? What do you make of uh, Top Secret? Well, it's a funny one, isn't it? Um, there are some good bits which I will cover okay but overall I, I found it is a little bit of a frustrating system because it's incredibly table heavy it's, there's table after table after table there's even tables within tables I think at one point you roll for a combat outcome and it says something like light wound and then you roll on another table to see how bad the light wound is, how much damage the light wound is. I mean, you, you just think, good Lord, how many tables has this game got? And it did, did just, it kind of remind me of something someone once said to me, I remember years and years ago when we were younger, that you know you can always tell a good game from a bad game, or a good game, a good system from a bad system, on the number of tables. The more tables it's got, the worse the system is. Um, and I'm not. I mean, I'm not sure. Might not be true, because we do like tables, don't we? I mean, room We like a fumble, the fumble table. Yeah. We like the resistance table. Tables can be fun. You know, they have a few tables in. And they say, oh, hang on, something bad's happened. You're gonna have to roll a d hundred and see. So, we, so I'm not I'm not disregarding the notion of the table altogether. But I think in top secret, you have to roll a lot of tables to do anything. Yeah. I mean, you really do. It, it's almost funny. I mean, there were points when I was rereading re the rules um, uh, and I was kind of laugh, started laughing almost hysterically to myself to think, God, this, this is like a joke. Is this a joke game where they're making you roll endless tables that lead you nowhere? It's, it's, a, bit in a, it's a bit like a Bond villain's attempt to bring down the world of role-playing. Oh, Mr Bond, people enjoy role-playing games. I've invented a game. They'll ruin role-playing for everyone because they'll just have to roll on tables endlessly. As I was thinking, the, the Game of Master's screen would be like the Berlin Wall. Is that very big? That many tables? It's <laughs> unbelievable. <laughs> so there was that. And I, I, there are, it, does have some, it does have some redeeming features. And it is interesting 
in an historical context to look at it because it, it puts it gives a certain picture of time and what games were doing and what people, maybe the people who designed it were trying to do um, and you can there are some elements to it that I do appreciate but in an overall overall view is wow there's a lot of tables <laughs> okay <laughs> I'm going to have that printed on uh, on a t-shirt tables can be fun tables can be they can be fun but, but not so what, what are the uh, three rules that you're going to pick out um, for us to discuss? Well, one, one rule I liked, in, do you want to list all three? Yeah, list all three um, and, then we'll, and then we'll go through them. That's how it works. Just, We've just, been doing this for 20 episodes. I'm sorry, it's yeah. because we're in the gentleman's club <laughs> and I've had too many taliskers and I'm not paying attention. Sorry. Um, character statistic generation or primary traits, primary personal traits as they're called, but stats. Yeah, yeah. Stats, the stats generation system is, is interesting. Right, okay, well, we'll have a look at that. Um, I think the NPC reaction table. The NPC. There is a table for it, unsurprisingly, there's a table for NPC reactions. But that's quite interesting, uh, even though it's a table, but, it, but it's interesting in terms of what it's trying to do. Um, and I think finally, fame and fortune points are interesting. Thing yeah, as well, they're, they're interesting aspect of it. So. so there's three interesting things. Three interesting things. things that you've got to pick out though. Okay. So let's uh, let's put this on the table. Mm. Okay. Yeah. Top secrets in the dark, and I think that this game is a thing of genius. Do you? You're speaking in the defence. I'm speaking in the defence. Oh, overruled. I'm a judge. Overruled. <laughs> That's the end of that. Anyway, moving on. <laughs> well, let's see how we go. Okay. Now, I'm I'm very aware that people may not be familiar with this game because it you know we've dealt with the big ones, haven't we? We dealt yes. with uh, yeah, yeah. So. It's a little, it's a little bit obscure, I suppose. Yeah. So what I'm going to do, I'm going to ask you um, to uh, roll a character. Let's look at these uh, these personal traits now. That okay. They work. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to be an agent. Have you got a name? When you play a fantasy game or science fiction game, weird names roll off the tongue, don't they? Yeah. You know. But when it's a real game like Cthulhu or something like this, I always kind of struggle because I start I start thinking of real people with those names who I don't like. <laughs> you know, I think, oh no, don't don't call him that. Don't call him this. They always have names like Jim Steele yeah. and things like that. Or you, or you give them a name that's a real name. You think it's all right, and then three sessions in, you think, oh my god, that's that kid at school. I couldn't stand, isn't it? Oh no, I like this character. The great thing about this is that it doesn't don't give you any names in the uh, book, does it? It doesn't really give you anything in the way of setting. Gives you uh, a lot setting. of tables. Gives you a lot of tables, but it doesn't give you... Uh, it's not got a table for character name. It should, it it. should do. <laughs> <laughs> it it doesn't give you much in the way of uh, context setting, and I think that's part of the trouble. I think yes. the thing to say up yes, front yes. is that it's not an easy read. No, it's not. It? I mean, I, I have to say, when I read it, I'm not sure conjured up or recreated the feeling of being a spy yeah but it certainly recreated the feeling of being 12 years old with my first role-playing rule book and thinking what the heck's this yeah it certainly is it is not but but i think inspiring I, or interesting. I i think bear with it because i think the joy of this is in the playing yeah well it's, with yeah, it's not things, in the reading it is with most things yeah yeah and, and for that reason, I'm yeah. going to invite you to create a, a, a character. Okay. okay. So let's uh, let's get cracking. So the uh, personal traits are created by rolling a d100, so it's 1 to 100. What I like about what they're trying to do is it tries to get around the idea of a really, really bad role. Because we've all created characters, haven't we? 
with a traditional 3D sex. Yeah. And then we've rolled a three or a four or yeah. five. And everyone, there's been an awkward moment then, hasn't there, where the games master thinks, do I let him re-roll that because it's dreadful? Mm-hmm. Or do, I let, do they have to stick with it? Try to overcome that, and I, that's quite admirable, I think. Therefore, my first point, before you start rolling, mm-hmm. Your Honour, I'm going to say that's the first thing of genius. That it, that it points out, yeah. it points out that yeah. your play characters are yes. something special yes. and above the norm. That's point one. I want that on the record. But what I would go on to say. Well, roll the uh, no, dice. No, no, you're not. No, I'll let no, you have your point in a minute. No, no you won't. Let's, let's, sure, let's, sure, you shut up. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, let the be, point is. The point is. Yeah. That's what's so sad about it. It has little glimmers of genius, and then it it, it just. Drifts off into stupid tables. Anyway, we'll come on to that. Yeah. Go on, right, I'll roll. Physical strength. Yeah. You ready? This is a measurement of your muscular strength. Get away. Okay. 54. 54. So I look on the table. You're looking on the table. And uh, you get plus 10. So 64. 64. Right. Okay. Charm. Charm. Yeah. Oh, a high roll. 82. 82. 82. 82. Plus five. So in in the quirks of this system, if you roll a ninety, yeah, that's, the, that's a bit stupid. You're better it? off because ninety one to hundred, you don't get any. Yeah, additions. you roll a ninety one. You're better on a ninety than a ninety one, yeah. aren't you? Willpower. Okay. This is your Willpower. perseverance. Okay. Okay. Sixty eight. Sixty eight, and uh, so that means it bumps up by ten. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Courage. Courage. This is uh, your reaction in the face of danger. 86. Oh, he's a good character, isn't he? I don't need these. Uh, yeah, yeah. 86. Plus five. Plus five. So 91. Wow. Knowledge. He is James Bond. He is. Isn't he? Not so bad. 74. 74 Knowledge. plus five. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, coordination. So this is... Uh, 70. Dexterity and quickness, God plus five. Lord. Now do you want to play? I, I want to play it. now. I want to play this character. He's great. This is the best character. I think I just ru- ruined my luck now. <laughs> for all the brilliant characters, I rolled duff ones forever on- onwards. So that shows how your primary um, yep. characteristics bumped up. And then you have a series of secondary. Yeah, yeah, which are generated from that. That's right. But yeah. I do think, I do think, I like it. I do like that rule because I think it, it, it's quite innovative, particularly for what, was it published, 1980? Right. Yeah, ninety-eight. I think it's innovative because it's it does get round that idea of the 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 bum roll that is always a bit stupid, a bit awkward. You know, no one ever lets you roll a three, so why bother? Right. The other the other way of uh, developing your characteristics. Now, I'm, I'd like you to have a roll on a couple of these. So okay. let's uh, let's get your age. Uh, on the table. Yeah, there's on the table on here. I've got my rule here because. Uh, there's a lot, a lot of tables, everyone. <laughs> right, I, think, well, I think the evidence for the prosecution is mounting up here. <laughs> ten, ten-sided dice, go on. Or oh, ten-sided dice. Yeah, go on. Okay. So, Age. So, Two. Okay. So roll it three times, sorry. Roll a ten-sided dice three, three times. Three times. Two, right. seven, eight, nine. Seven, twelve. Fifteen, that's fifteen. Fifteen, right. Okay, add twelve years. What? So add twelve days to that. 27. 27, okay. Okay. Now, <laughs> you need to roll it. Can I just pick one? Can I just pick an H? Go on, sorry. No, no. I've thrown you now, haven't I? It's yeah. so much fun, Chris, you're right. 
<laughs> it's so much fun, isn't it? All right then. Let's go. Genius. Go on. Let's go. Don't. I want to know what my age is. Can you carry on? That's it. That's it. 27. 27, yeah, okay. 27. 27, oh. Okay. For every five years over 50, you'll lose one to ten points in both physical strength and coordination. Because these figures go up and down, don't they? Mm. Now, part of the trouble, I think, uh, in the rules, in the run of the rules, is that yeah. these um, personal traits don't really come into it. If you look, if you read the rules... Yes, they, they just... That's right, they kind of... Yeah, they don't, do they really? No, because like things like um, I don't know if you go in, you fall out of a boat. It's, mm. it's determined by a table rather than by these yes. primary attributes. Yes. So, it and, and this is what I mean. That's a little bit sad about it. That it, it starts off very well, rolling your character. But well, you oh, know, you know, you know, you know that that sadness will be eliminated <laughs> as soon as you introduce players, and what yeah, players well. will do. Players will do. They'll use those primary traits to determine it. They won't use a table to determine whether there's a shark in the water. Well, maybe not, but the game says you do. Yeah, but in, in the run of play, you, you would do it. You would have fun with with those percentages. You would. You would, but... Anyway, we need to find out whether this character's got glasses. Okay, this is a good roll. This is an exciting yeah. roll, isn't it? Yeah, roll a ten-sided dice. Now, this isn't in the form of a table, but is it could have been. It could have been. Go on. What is it? Go on, roll, roll your dice. Two. Okay, you uh, wear glasses. Do I? Okay. Right, okay. Right, just take my glasses off to read what you have to do now. Yeah. Okay. okay. So your character wears glasses. Now yeah. roll, a de- roll another uh, ten-sided dice. <sighs> this is fun. It's a table for this. This is no. what they want. No, this is table what they want. One. One. You've rolled one. You can't wear contacts. You're, uh, that, that's, I'm going to go along with that. I've never liked the idea. <laughs> So you yourself in the eye every morning. Yeah. You know? So so you might be able to kill people with your bare hands, but you can't, can't stick your finger. <laughs> you can't stick a finger in me on that. <laughs> okay. Now in this game, you can't pick your areas of knowledge. No. You have to roll on a table. You have to roll on a table. You have to roll on a table. So, uh, roll a, a percentile, percentile dice. <laughs> it's another table. I have to say to anyone listening, if you like tables, this is the game for you. I mean, I don't, but if you do... It's good that you're already getting a flavour of who this character is, aren't you? Yeah, there, yeah, there is a bit of that to it, yeah. yeah. 44. 44. 44 is a geology. So you, you can, you're yeah. tuning with rocks. Roll again. Okay. 70. Religion. So rocks and religion. Um, you're... Spy, your agent uh, uh, can can do. He's in a rock gospel band. He's in a rock gospel band. <laughs> That's his cover. Okay, roll again. Forty-five. Home economics. Home economics. Do I remember that? I think I think we rolled that um, when we were creating a character with Simon, and I think Simon said very very knowledgeably. I don't know if this is true. Very knowledgeably. Oh yeah, James Bond's a good cook. And we both went, oh, right, okay, that's all right then. <laughs> but it's home economics, it doesn't say cooking. Cooker, it's his home economics. Does that mean you turn up with a basket with some eggs in to make jam tarts while you do it at school? You know, you never know when it's going to come in. You never know when it's going to come in, do you? To home economics. Home economics. Yeah. Baker pies and cake. That's it. Baker cake with a file in it. Yeah. To get them out of that's it, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. See, already you're imagining. Already, it's working. Yeah. It's magic. Those tables are working the magic. 
So the Bureau of Classification um, is, is interesting. So these, these are the uh, jobs you can do. Um, so you can either, the, the, um, the adventures are built around this, aren't they? So yeah. section one is administrator. Ooh, now, you can't, exciting. You can't be an administrator. Oh, no. Is that the games master? The games master is right, the administrator. Okay. Right. But that goes back from the days when uh, originally it was the administrator was one of the player characters. So the mm. games master pl- yeah. played the game. Um, section two, investigation. So you know you do things. Okay. Uh, section three confiscation. Ooh. Yeah. And uh, section double O. Double O. Does it say double O? Yeah. Uh-huh. Assassination. Of course. But what would you? You wouldn't buy anything else, would you? And so in each of these, um, in each of these sections. So if you wanted, if your character wanted to be an assassin, you start at level one, and. Depending on the experience points, you would move up the rankings. Yeah, yeah. You start off as a punk. A punk. <laughs> so you start off as a bit of a thug. Oh, it's a level, hang on, level two's a thug, isn't it? Yeah, you're not and a thug. ruffian. Well, well don't get ahead of yourself. Well, I, I know, but... You haven't done anything yet. It's quite exciting, isn't it? You're a punk. Until you're a thug. No, that sounds unpleasant, doesn't it? That, that sounds like some kind of hooligan who just kills people for money. And then the next bit is um, you need to use your $400 to buy... Stuff on the shopping list. Oh right, okay. There we are. Let's have a look. So this is nineteen eighty shopping list, is it? Yeah. Socks two dollars. Is that right? <laughs> that seems a lot. Back in nineteen eighty. Well, socks are very. It's a, I'll put, a luxury it, item. It for American listeners. Does that sound realistic? Two dollars for a pair of socks in nineteen eighty. I wouldn't imagine the two dollars now. Okay. So that's, uh, that's, that's essentially your um, character um, um, built up, your, your agent built up. Um, the, only, the only thing that you can determine without looking at a table... Mm. It's the name. The na- there's a name. <laughs> well, I could do with a table for that, because I'll name it after a kid I didn't like at school. <laughs> that's the thing I could do with the table for, names. <laughs> and uh, what, what, uh, what arm do you use in real life? Right, right. So your character's got that. Every character you have in Top Secret will be right-handed. Is, is that is that what it says? Does it yeah, say yeah. that? Yeah. Because you're right-handed. Because you're right-handed. This is a good way of determining. Well, it is, I suppose. Yeah. So that's uh, that's the first thing we we've shown the uh, character creation mm. and uh, bump up stats. So what's the what's the second thing that you wanted to look at? Well, the we, second thing there is there is a there is a table in there for NPC reactions. And I think this is sort of interesting because it pushes it pushes a little bit on that idea, doesn't it, of which we all struggle with sometimes as a games master, I think, it's how NPCs react. You know, so when you run in a game, you often have an idea in your head of how an NPC is going to react. Um, and then the players don't quite play it as you imagine. And then you, you're caught on the hoof a little bit, aren't you? And, you know, we, I've certainly been in situations where the NPCs reacted in a way that I've regretted afterwards. So I think, it, again, it, it's a little bit sort of in, quite innovative in some respects that they've put that in to push the idea of NPC reactions, particularly in a game where NPC reactions are probably going to be more significant because it's a real, a modern-day, real day if you like, role-playing game, not not crawling down a dungeon where your NPC reaction is going to be generally fight you, try and eat you, you know, that kind of thing. 
So, so the, the way the way that this works um, is each of your contacts will have a trait. So when mm. you, um, yeah. you you come up against some someone, um, it, they'll have a trait, and then you put your trait against it. So depending yeah. on your tactics or mm. how you how you're going to encounter Approach them, them. Yes, yeah, that's right. Yeah, uh, will determine which of your attributes yes. that you use. Yeah. So. Um, you may want to dazzle them. Mm. So by dazzling them, it's coordination. How would you? How would you? Is that a card tricks. Card tricks, yeah. And then what you do is match your trait. Yes. Against uh, the reaction. On a table. On a and table and against their. I'm not think so. Trait reaction. Character trait trait, trait value. Yeah. Yeah. So mm. and then you work down, and each of the mm. reactions has a code, and then you look <laughs> on another table, and um, you'll get reactions such as contact will listen to the agent, then admin's die roll will walk away. One to thirty will ask the agent to leave. Thirty-four to sixty-six will ask the agent to shut up. <laughs> it's not very imaginative. You've gone off this rule, actually. I'm thinking about it. No, it's not very good. No, I think I think you're right. You see, this is my my contention uh, with it, uh, Judge Blythe. My contention with this, this game. It is awkwardly written. Yes, but it's an attempt at this time. It is an attempt. It's, it's an attempt at this time. Um, whenever you think TSR were producing um, the Dungeon Master's Guide, were trying to codify anything. Mm. So, so their instinct was to codify everything. Yeah. And we've already established that this genre, this type of game, is awkward. Yes. So you're meeting two awkward things. You're meeting a awkward thing that's hard to grasp, an awkward genre, and then an awkward series of yes. game mechanic tools yes. to deal with it. And I actually think this is a good attempt to try and make um, dungeon dwellers think differently well, about, uh, uh, about yes. interactions yeah. and about yeah, yeah. how people might behave. Yes, and that's why I picked it, because I think you're right, that this particular rule does do that. It does try and push that idea of interaction. So rather than, you know, if, how you choose to approach them. See, that's the key thing, isn't it? I think D&D, first edition, probably has roles in about how monsters are going to react to you and that kind of thing. But what this does is it pits your approach... Yeah. against their reaction so your approach is what matters yes as well and i think that is quite clever that it's pushing that idea it, it does it in a sort of slightly clumsy way and there's also a whiff of um as we discussed earlier with simon and his obsession with solo games there is a whiff of the solo game about it isn't there? Yeah, as yeah. if you could almost play this game by yourself and think right okay my character's going to approach this contact in such a way, and I wrote because I've got a table to roll on. I, the table will tell me, rather than the games master or administrator in this case, yeah. what will happen. So there's a little bit of solo play, but you're right. It is that attempt to. It, it, it's a different view of role playing games than the view that people have now. It's trying to, you're right, codify the world through a game, and because. Because the world that Top Secret exists in is a more complicated world, because it's a real world, that seems to have led to more tables, because there's more to codify yes. than there is when you're down a dungeon hitting things with a sword. And that's 
in a sense, in a sense that's what's good about it, and I can see why you find it appealing. But in a sense, that's what kind of, for me, cripples it a bit as a game because yeah. it's over codified. It, and I, I must admit, when I read through it, my heart did sink. There were points where I thought, "Oh my God, I cannot, I cannot bear any more of this," because this is just ludicrous amount of table tables within yeah. tables within tables. I mean, there's even a table for sort of executions, isn't there? <laughs> so if your character's executed, <laughs> you you roll a d hundred, and it's got a, a range of methods of execution, from hanging to poisoning to scorpion. Was a scorpion sting? And you think. Well, what, what's this about? Wouldn't wouldn't a game games master worth his salt think? Okay, you've been captured by I don't know Baron von Goldfinger, so he's gonna shoot you or kill you with a laser. Whereas if you've been captured in the desert by some tribesmen who are gonna execute you, they're gonna use a scorpion. You wouldn't roll on a bloody table, would you? You wouldn't roll on the table and go right. You've been captured in the desert, and that's and that's they're precisely they're gonna the wear. They've ordered a laser by mail order. They're going to wait till that arrives to kill you. And then, and then, and then, and no word of a lie, there's a survival roll. So you roll on the table to see how you're going to be executed. And then there's a survival roll to see if you survive the execution. And you think, this is weird. It's weird. Well, isn't that precisely what would happen in the run of play? And although it's presented as a table, what it's actually doing is making you think about Okay, within as a games master, yeah, these are the array of executions that that's blow That's you speaking now. I don't think in 1980 when people read this game they were thinking that. It's trying to push them in that direction, but I think it, what it's really actually, it's got to look at the words on the page. What it's saying is in this game, if you're going to be executed, you roll. The well, table. I, th- I think, I think. And that, that's just daft. But that's just looking at the rules as written. I think the in the run of play, I can see how. In yes. the 1980s, yes. this would capture the imagination of um, people who picked well, it up. Well, because it I think you are looking at that with a much, you are using your very sophisticated and very experienced role playing brain. You're looking at Top Secret with a sophisticated role player's brain that has played a lot of role playing games, different types of role playing games over the years. And that's fair enough. There's nothing wrong with that. But what I'm saying is, if you looked at this in 1980, um, I think, I'm not sure you would have those perspectives, because those perspectives are very much with hindsight, aren't they? I disagree, I disagree. (laughs) What I'm saying to you is the exact opposite, Mm. that I can see that, okay, I'm experienced as um, a player of games, Mm. and my experience of playing games is through charts and tables, Mm. yeah? I'm interested in um, espionage as a kind mm. of adventure setting. Therefore, I'm going to I'm going to turn this into adventures for my for my friends. How do I do that? Actually, it's through these tables. Let me just start. Your Honour, if I can just present <laughs> this table of missions. Oh yes. Because I think this table of missions is good. Now, the way the way this is presented is to award experience points. Yes. Yeah, yeah. But in actual fact, what it actually helps the administrator stroke GM do is create an adventure. Yeah. So you can... A random uh, dungeon generator. It's a random dungeon generator. We know what we think of those. (laughs) We know what you think of those. Well, I think you agree with that. 
<laughs> but we'll, we'll wave that through. Hang on, we'll let's look at that. the case in point. Let's look at the case in point. <laughs> you can't look yeah. at case law in this. Well, I think you can. <laughs> so I'll give you an example. So, for example, if you pick out um, uh, an assassination in here, mm. what it'll actually do is then give you a series of codes. So it'll say, um, <laughs> there's a lot of columns. There's one, two, three, four, <laughs> five, there's six, a lot of columns. Seven, eight columns. Whoa. Okay. So in the briefing information, if I look under A, um, you'll be given the identity of the human target, B, uh, the latest location of the uh, target. Um, the information that, that will be withheld is E, so look under E, this number of persons present. You won me over now. But you don't need to know that, do you, as a player? Me as a, an administrator <laughs> sitting at home, how am I going to create fun for my friends? I'll look on here and think... Well, that's, yeah, well, that's an interesting point as well, I think. What's not entirely clear about the game, and maybe it's intentionally not clear, is whether these things are done in the run of play or beforehand. I mean, some of the tables, you, you do wonder, was, is the idea that you, can, you play it without any prep and you roll tables and roll dice? And again, it comes back to that solo play yeah. thing of you know you, you would roll on a table you, you'd sit down in the evening go right we're going to play top secret you've got your characters right, I'm going to roll on the mission table everyone and see what we get yeah. you know and do you do it like that or do you roll on the table in advance in, as a way of preparing this thing that's not quite clear you know is that table to kind of stimulate your imagination which i can imagine it would do because if you do there is that thing when you roll on tables and things come up that you don't expect and you think oh that's interesting you can see that but i think the problem is you can look at some of these tables in isolation as i said earlier we all like a good table but i think it's just there's, there's, there's so many i mean when you get into combat i just thought oh my God, yeah, we should uh, we should mention Whoa. combat briefly. So, well, it's hard to mention it briefly. Isn't it, it is, yeah. It does go on and it, on. It's it's very very cumbersome, I think. Yeah, you know. I mean, what it does attempt to do um, is to try and describe mm. blow by blow yeah. granular yeah. combat. I mean, if you like crunch, it's about as crunchy as it a crunchy is, thing. It it's yeah. A, yeah. it's like a crunchy wrapped in a. <laughs> Crunch bar and a dairy crunch. It is crunchy. Um, <laughs> maybe we'll talk about that uh, later. But uh, <laughs> we have to. Okay. The um, let's uh, look at your third one. Uh, third one is fame and fortune points. Fame and fortune. Where I'm not sure this is an optional rule actually. It is an optional but rule. It's, um, it, it is interesting. If you look at the history. In historical context of um, top secret, this is often quoted mm. as one of the innovations. Yeah, and I think that's right. I think, I think that's true, and it has, and it's kind of something that's filtered into other games because right. fortune points. Yeah. Um, I think you roll a d10, and the administrator keeps a secret, so you don't see how many fortune points you've got. But at various points in the game, and I don't think you get any more back, do you? Once they're used, they're used. Um, and then it allows you to actually roll dice again and things, doesn't it? Yeah. So it's a bit like luck points, which have sort of peppered all through modern role-playing games, aren't they? Luck yeah, points, yeah. fortune points, all Bennies. that kind of thing. Yeah. So it is It is a very innovative idea and a clever idea, you know. 
that you've got these luck points. It's the idea of your luck running out, you see. You don't actually know when your luck's run out because the administrator has the total, which is, again, yeah. quite a good idea. It's quite good fun, isn't it? You think, you think you're going to be lucky again, but you're not lucky. You've run out. You only had six, and this is your seventh time. I suppose this is uh, allows you to have um, feet feats of heroism isn't it so it means yes. that you can yeah. do yeah, the yeah, thing yeah. of uh, you know you get shot by a bullet but it's hit um, yeah. you know a bible in your inside pocket that yeah it's that of kind of thing isn't it you know which, which you see in sort of James Bond all the time don't you where he's lucky you know you're lucky that kind of thing you know yeah I think see this is what uh, I think fame and fortune points are the thing that kind of reiterate my feelings about the game mm. Notwithstanding the fact that it is an awkward mm. read, it is difficult yeah, to yeah, read. Yeah. But I think it's a narrativist game mm. trapped within a simulationist <laughs> rule set. It's been You've sold it to me now. <laughs> That's you should have gone into advertising with phrases <laughs> like that, shouldn't you? Buy this. It's a narrative narrativist escape trapped in a simulus game simulationist game. I'd have bought it. If that had been on it, I'd have bought it. I'd take back everything I said. <laughs> People will be ordering it now on eBay. They're trying to get hold of it as we speak. And with, <laughs> and with that, I'm going to put that down as a win. Yeah. Overruled. <laughs> the White Dwarf. Redacted. Dragon. Normally, this part of the podcast, we would turn to our good friend, at Daily Dwarf, from Twitter, to trawl through the back issues of the heyday of White Dwarf to find choice pieces to illustrate the game under discussion. But Top Secret only appeared in adverts. Dragon, on the other hand, was very fulsome in its support of the game. It was the TSR House magazine, and Mel Rasmussen was a TSR staffer who was on hand to develop rules for his game through the monthly publication. Along with others, he made regular contributions, expanding the rule set and offering supporting material to help flesh out the setting. When it comes to Top Secret, I think there's a definite distinction between the rules as written and the rules as played. Outside of the rules, the game's developed a life of its own, and it's very popular with players who demanded more from TSR. Of course, much of this additional material took the form of hardware and weaponry. Sniper rifles, grenades, landmines, machine guns, missiles, even the effects of nuclear weapons were covered. The last thing that Top Secret needs is an increasing proliferation of rules to add to the corridors of its labyrinthine combat tables. And the bloodlust was apparent in the reader questions. How much does a, a, a flamethrower inflict? What are the statistics for an M60 light matching gun, an M14 assault rifle, an MP56 submachine gun, an 81mm M29 mortar, 105mm M102 howitzer, a red eye shoulder fired missile, rifle grenade launchers, an M60 tank, a Patton tank, an M1 tank and a Northrop F5 Freedom Fighter? Phew. The terse reply was, The top secret game is not a military role-playing game. Official statistics on military ordnance are not available. In retrospect, it's possible to see that in some quarters the game was seen as a means of introducing guns and ammo sensibilities to D&D, murder hobos in tuxedos. 
but the game had other ambitions. In issue 40, the Rassaman files was a regular top secret column where design secrets were shared. Some of the original material that didn't make the final cut were printed with commentary. His design notes when researching the genre included a comprehensive flowchart that illustrated some of the narrative directions that could be found in Napoleon Solo, uh, Maxwell Smart and Derek Flint adventures as well as others from TV and film. This flowchart took the character from creation proceeding through a series of narrative events, step by step. This supported the original concept where the administrator would be a player who was competing with the assassins and confiscators. The administrator was elevated the status of a regular games master during the playtesting so that the random interventions of players could be accommodated. However, this flowchart gives a sense of how Rasmussen had an eye for the structural development of interesting storylines, rather than just the crunchy mutual annihilation apparent on the surface of the rules. The flowchart was abandoned and not included in the rules, however the experience table gave a hint of this earlier concept. The table provided a list of missions with codes that gave the GM possible elements to develop in the adventure. In issue 61, Gary Gygax himself contributed a new bureau classification, Infiltration, complete with its own list of possible missions. This was a class that was developed in his home game, played with his son Luke. The mission list generates stories on the fly, such as Infiltrator's student group, identify the leader, there'll be complications such as false information. Dragon also provided a technician class so that agents could tackle missions using tech and gadgets. Again, the rules don't really provide any details on the benefits of progression through these classes, but they're used to define the types of operation that will be fun to play, and some of the narrative complications that might be encountered. The classification bureaus are key to understanding top secrets narrativist intent. In Dragon 47, Rasmussen provides more granular descriptions of the special classification within bureaus that are provided in the rules. These are more of a colour to uh, give to the characters. So, uh, for example, a magician in Spy Talk is an agent experienced in investigation and confiscation who's an escape artist. A uh, master of disguise. Or there's a mechanic, a spy whose job it is to create accidents. Or a hunter who's skilled at hiding in shadows and tracking targets. This style of character building descriptions appear 30 or so years later in Ken Hike's spy thriller emulator, Knight's Black Agents, for the gumshoe system. But what about scenarios? It's the adventures where a game usually comes to life. Most of the early top secret modules didn't serve the system well. The early ones are framed more as military missions suitable for mercenaries rather than espionage. The scenarios in Dragon were similar. In issue 39, for instance, the missile mission involves player characters taking on the role 
of two rival agencies from Russia and China who were seeking the secrets of a NATO superweapon. In issue 48, there's plans for a secret underwater base with the title Dr. Yes. All the plans are there, even down to the air conditioning system. The highlight of these scenarios for me were the final contribution from Rasmussen. Operation Zodiac was a series of scenario ideas about space travel, which were complemented by special rules which included new attributes for dealing with zero gravity. There's also plenty of background supporting material about different space agencies too. But something moribund about the subject matter as at the time it was published in 1987, the space shuttle programme was paused following the Challenger disaster and battles against the KGB in space seemed to reflect an earlier time. However, the mode of constructing the different scenario hooks demonstrated how the experience table had transformed as a means of presenting scenario ideas. For example, codename Taurus, a satellite in the payload, has been tampered with so that the astronomical tool can be transformed into a surveillance device. The complication was that a rival mission from the Soviets was going to shadow the uh, NASA mission in order to take control of the satellite. It's all fascinating and detailed and exciting stuff. Dragon continued supporting Top Secret SI when the new edition came out, including an article celebrating the potential of the new advantages and disadvantages mechanic in the character creation, written by Marcus L. Rowland, a writer more famous for his contributions to White Dwarf. At Daily Dwarf is right, everything does come back to White Dwarf. Starburst memories! This is a brand new section of the Grognard Files. Back in the day, our cultural touch points were three journal tent poles. White Dwarf, 2000 AD, and Starburst magazine, published in the UK by Marvel. It was our version of Starlog. Every month we would study it to discover the latest incarnation of Caroline Monroe and what films and TV we needed to seek out um, to inform our gaming. I've devised this overly complicated uh, audience participation. So what I've asked you to do, Blythe, I think you've got a list there mm. of 10 spy sequences yeah, have, from yeah. film and television another table you got another table another table in the spirit of top secret go yeah. on yeah. so you got a table there yeah. of a ten and I've got ten mm-hmm. okay so what we're going to do in this over complicated segment mm. is we're going to roll on a d10 each of us yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. and then we're going to describe a sequence mm-hmm. yeah and then we're going to talk about how it, a game how it could mm. inform games how it could work in the games right? And then after we've run the spy episodes, which mm. will be in about twelve months' time, yeah, yeah, we're going to run a poll. Okay. Okay. And the results of that poll yeah. will determine which sequence uh, patrons would like to see recreated in an actual play using a system of their choice. Okay. A pay attention bond. <laughs> pay attention. <yeah. laughs> pay attention bond. <laughs> okay. So. We're going to roll on this table. Have you got your table? Um, I'll, yeah. let you, I'll let you go first. Right, okay, here we go. Oh, that's a seven. It's a seven. Okay. Double O seven. Double O seven. 
So what's your pick? What have you got there? Well, seven is the scene in Casino Royale, the new the new Casino Royale, not, not the uh, parody version, the Daniel Craig Casino Royale. Oh, that's a pity, because I, like, uh, I like the one with David Niven. You like the one David Niven. And uh, Woody Allen is little Jimmy Bond. Yes, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But no, it's not that one. It's the, uh, it's the Daniel Craig version. Um, and it's the scene in the stairwell of the hotel ah, yes, where the yeah. two the two kind of uh, don't know they're mercenaries um, he fights them he kicks one down the stairs so one falls down the stairwell and is killed instantly and the other one he kind of grapples with doesn't he and there's this long uh, scene where he's got his arm around his neck and he, he sort of slowly strangles him and the guy's feet are kicking and it seems to go on forever and it's quite an unpleasant scene and I, I remember what I remember watching it and thinking, me, this is a James Bond film. And, you know, you're normally used to James Bond dispatching people fairly quickly with a with a comical quip at the end of it, you know. So when, when uh, Sean Connery throws the electric fire into the bath and he's, he says, oh, shocking. You know, you're used to that, aren't you? Yeah. But that's not what you get in this film. What you get is James Bond really kind of wringing the life out of this guy yeah um and he's unpleasant and then afterwards you've got the scene where he kind of downs all the scotch a big glass of scotch and you can see the effect that this is had on him and you've got the the bond the bond girl vesper haven't you watching it and she's kind of shocked um and it is a it's an interesting scene because yeah. it's a proper there's a real sense that he's killed someone and that person didn't want to die because yeah. people don't no I think it was uh, Alfred Hitchcock, wasn't it, who uh, put forward the idea that it's very hard mm. to kill a man. Yeah. And uh, in uh, Torn Curtain, there's this scene where there's like this um, uh, yeah. intense battle where they're trying to kill yeah, him. Yeah. And it, yeah. it is like that. And I think it's a statement of intent as well, isn't it, that film yeah. uh, of the modern era to say, yeah. post-Bond. Uh, yeah, po- yeah. Post we're, we're, done with, we're done with Bond kind of being a slightly comic character or a lightweight yeah. character and... We've done with the idea of killing people being almost funny, you know. Yeah. So, what about in terms of gaming then? This scene, why? Well, it's it's interesting because it is a difficult. It's always difficult. There's two difficult things in there that I think are difficult in role playing games. One is unarmed combat. So you've got this grapple, haven't you, and this strangulation thing, which a lot of role playing games don't really cover very well. You know, they, they often. You know, shooting, hitting people with swords, that kind of thing. But actual, the, the nastiness, I suppose, and the trickiness of that kind of unarmed combat, brutality of it, yeah. is difficult to replicate in a role-playing game, isn't it, I think? And I suppose the other thing that's difficult to replicate in a role-playing game, and I, I think goes back to your comment about why, you know, maybe why I'm a bit cool on role-playing games set in the here and now, is... The, the sort of guilt that Bond seems to feel that, that she's horrified by what he's done he feels a bit bad because he sees that reflected back at him that what he's done is quite brutal and although albeit necessary because these guys are going to kill him if he doesn't kill them uh, Vesper's appalled by it she's upset yeah. by it he's a bit upset by it and those things are difficult in role playing games because invariably those elements are what make modern day films interesting yeah. But in a role-playing game, there never is that guilt because it's it's 
it's a role playing game. Yeah. And I think those two aspects are difficult to replicate. Yeah. It's I think the uh, uh the unarmed combat thing, I think you're right with that. I think with um with the psychological thing, the mm. uh, Knights Black Agent tries to do it. It does. I was just thinking that it does yeah. do that, doesn't it? It does a kind of sanity thing, doesn't it? Yeah, sanity. It also has like drive, so mm. understanding yeah, what yeah. drive because because that right. scene is very much like a a rite of passage scene, isn't it? Yeah. Where Bond is kind of yeah. coming to grips with yeah. his yeah. role because it's an origin story, isn't it? Do it is really. Yeah. They're like yeah. like kickstarting it again, aren't they? Rebooting yeah. the whole thing. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. Coming to terms with the fact that he's a killer, and coming to terms with the fact that some people might view what he does in a very poor light, which yeah. is what she sort of does. She, she looks at it and thinks that's horrific because if he's a bit of a monster. Yeah. you know. And, and those things are difficult to replicate in role-playing games. But, I, and I think what you said about Knights Black Agents is interesting, um, but I think that's the thing, isn't it, where if you're playing a modern-day role-playing game set in the here and now with no fantasy, maybe, maybe that kind of thing is necessary to make it compelling yeah. as a game. And without that, it isn't as compelling as a fantasy game or a science fiction game. Yeah. Maybe that's the thing, I don't know. Yeah. I suppose he is a bit of a monster, isn't he? Uh, yeah, Daniel, monster, yeah, 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 Daniel Craig has got Psychopath. a Well, he's got a face like a bag of spanners. I do. I cannot understand for the life he, of me. He looks like the long lost son of Sid James at times, doesn't he? <laughs> he does. He does, I know, he does look like he's got the. the <laughs> women fawn over him. They do, yeah. don't they? But he's got a face like a bag of spanners and a taxi with his doors open. Yeah, he? he does look like yeah. But yeah. I like him though because he looks like a killer. Yeah, I like I like that incarnation of James Bond because he, James Bond is a killer. He is psychopathic, isn't he? Yeah. I, I once watched a, there was once a Channel Four program on top top ten psychopaths. And I think James Bond came in at number four. Yeah. You know, and of, co- of course at first you think well, James Bond a psychopath. Of course he is, isn't he? I mean, he's he's a cold not, not, not killer, the way, isn't he? Not the way that Bronham did it, is it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> what was that? <laughs> but even even when you look at <laughs> 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 yeah. it wasn't a hard hard act to follow, was it? No, it wasn't great, was. to be fair. And his yeah. invisible car. But I think that's the thing in uh, that's the thing. You didn't in, see that coming, did you? No, he didn't. He didn't. Did you? No. I think that's the thing. Talk about the invisible car. Talking mm. about um, Casino Royale, the original one as a parody. Mm. In games, there's always a risk, isn't it, with espionage and spy games that they do end up being a parody because you, it's yes. hard to keep players on track because yes. they yeah. kind of laugh at it, don't they? Yeah, yeah that, that's true. The minute you introduce a gadget, you know, I mean, we've done a little bit of it during this podcast. You know, immediately there's loads of tropes and cliches in that isn't there that you can sort of and I suppose that's the thing isn't it you can use those cliches and jokes in fantasy games it doesn't seem to take away from the fantasy because we all know it's fantasy but once you try and do a a real time real modern day espionage thing you sort of don't want those jokes in but they inevitably appear yeah there you go okay Okay. my turn to roll and it's three three okay this is interesting because this is a, a similar but very, very different mm. sequence. And this is Three Days of the Condor. Oh, yeah. Uh, Sid- Robert Redford. Yeah, Robert Redford. Now, mm. there is somebody who is pure charisma. Mm. Yeah, yeah. Now, I would say charisma that. Charisma 18. Yeah. <laughs> I would say that because I bear a passing resemblance to him. He doesn't. <laughs> uh, yeah, so this was uh, Sidney Pollock's 1975 film. And... Um, the, the interesting thing in, in, in game term is that 
Robert Redford at the start of the film is part of a clandestine part of the CIA who are a team of people who are reading magazines, books from all over the world looking for codes or looking for some form of conspiracy mm. buried within trash novels and magazines. And um, that's an interesting proposition for um, uh, role-playing, isn't it? Mm. Because usually, as a spy uh, trope, is that it's one individual alone, isn't it? So you're one yeah. individual alone in the mm. world right. who has to fight. Thing. But what it sets up in the... Uh, uh, the first few scenes of uh, Three Days of Condor is that actually they could have a team of agents yeah, yeah, yeah. in this very discreet and esoteric corner of the CIA mm. doing specific work. So I think that's interesting game mm. term. But that doesn't matter because whilst um, uh, Robert Redford's out getting lunch, uh, they all get killed. Uh, <laughs> very <laughs> TPK. <efficient>. TPK. <laughs> Apart from Robert Redford. Apart from Robert Redford, yeah. fairly early on, yeah. fairly early yeah. on, uh, Max von Sydow, very efficient killer, comes in and yeah. kills them all in cold blood. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And this is down to a report that has been um, sent up um, the chain of command mm. by Robert Redford, and they're after him. Mm. They're after him. Yeah. And what follows is a, a, a series of cat and mouse. Now, the get the get the the actual sequence that I've chosen. Is a sequence where he's on he's on the run. He's trying to he's trying to get away from whoever's killing them. It turns out to be the CIA. Um, it, it spoiled it for people. It spoiled it for people. But it's like a rogue element within the yeah, CIA. Yeah, yeah, so he yeah. can't he can't. Turn, is, isn't it? Yeah, he can't turn anywhere for protection. Yeah, and you know, like he says to everyone, "I'm not a field agent." You know, he's vulnerable. Yeah, he's set yeah, up yeah. as being vulnerable. Not James Bond. He's not Very James Bond. He's James the opposite Bond. of James yeah. Bond. And the sequence that I love, and it's very similar but very different, is the sequence when the postman knocks mm. and it's the assassin. And the face-to-face in uh, Fair Dunaway's uh, uh, apartment mm. and there's a, yeah. a scrap using improvised weapons. Yes, yeah. um, the, a jar of coffee, um, a, a porker. Yeah. And he's there, with, you know, the, and there's like this mm. uh, standoff. And it's like a blow-by-blow... Um, a battle sequence, hand to hand combat, that I think I think is a really good bit of the film. Yeah, yeah, it's a good, it's a good fight, it, it, like you say. Although it is quite funny, he opens the door to the postman, doesn't he? Yeah, you would never do it. A, a play character. That's when you throw that as you watch it, you think you're on the run, and the postman knocks on the door. <laughs> what could be so urgent? <laughs> Surely he you lets him in. You lets him in. <laughs> let's is it let's in it. Look, kidding is not a field agent. The only time he becomes uh, suspicious when he looks at his brown shoes as though that's supposed to send that's you a clue. indicator, yeah. yeah. And increasingly more suspicious when he pulls a gun on him. Yeah. Oh, you're not a postman, are you? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what what I think what I think um illustrates something though about these two sequences that we've chosen is the importance of hand to hand combat. Mm. In. Yeah. I think now I know that you're reading Feng Shui, aren't you? At the moment. I am, yeah. yeah. Now, Feng Shui is, and modern games are all about quick resolution of combat, aren't they? Yeah, and sort of flexibility and, uh, I suppose, a bit, bit of imagination in terms of what's happening. So it allows you to roll dice, and if you roll very, very well, you can describe certain combat actions. Yeah. And it's sort of, I suppose, in, in a, to put it simply, a very, very good dice roll allows you to gives you permission to negotiate with the games master to do something spectacular. Yeah. 
But what I, I think in these two sequences, I think it shows the power and drama of crunch. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know? Yeah. And that, I think, to go back to Top Secret discussing in, in this episode, that's what that's trying to do. Now, there are loads and loads of tables to do with hand-to-hand combat. Yes, there are. And there's tables to determine what's allowable combat. Yeah. And um, in the, in the, first, this, the, way, the way it works is that um, if you're doing an offensive move, so say a judo move, um, you write it down on a piece of paper, and me as a defender, I write down uh, two mm. things that I yeah. can use against your offensive move, and we reveal them both at the same mm. time. Then consult on the chart to see what the, it's like uh, rock, paper, scissors. Yeah, it is. A bit, uh, yeah. If devised by Stephen Hawking. Yeah. But, <laughs> but I think what it's trying to do is replicate those scenes. Yes. Those, those oh, yeah, movie, it is. Movies absolutely. Were. Yeah, it's, it's it's acknowledging that in those kind of films and those that those kind of novels and that, that kind of genre, uh, yeah, unarmed combat is a bigger deal than it is. It is a bigger deal than it is in other role-playing games because you have, you've got a sword or a gun. I mean, you might have a gun in Top Secret, but I suppose because it's modern day, there are instances where you wouldn't have a gun because yeah. you'd have to conceal it and, and, you know... And I think we get frustrated by the level of uh, granularity, you yeah. know, the level yeah, of detail, yeah, yeah. but I can see how it's compelling. You know, that maybe fights shouldn't be resolved quickly. Maybe fights should have that grind to them. Well, I think, yeah, and, and this is always this is one of the kind of eternal RPG questions, isn't it? That you can argue it both ways, I think. There are systems where fights become a major event that can last for in game time and you know an hour at the table for one fight. You know, RuneQuest, particular good example of that. Top Secret would be another. Um, and then there's other systems that resolve things quickly. And uh, you can argue it both ways, can't you? Um, but there's, there is something to be said for crunch, you know. And for a long time. Although we've we've migrated a little bit onto games that are a bit more fluid and a bit quicker, but for a long time we were big fans of Crunch. Yeah. I mean, we played RuneQuest endlessly, and one of the one of the things that we loved about it was the fact that you could have one fight in a session, and it felt like a big event with yeah. all sorts of things happening. You know, yeah. we've talked about it on the podcast, haven't we? And yeah. I suppose Top Secret does try and do that. But, but as I say, I think it's it's just that it's a bit. It's a bit cumbersome in the way it does it. It's yeah. too much reference into tables. So it's that balance, isn't it, where it's good to have some crunch, but when the crunch starts to slow the game down and become a little bit ponderous and become a bit, you know, oh, hang on a minute, right, hang on. So you've rolled it, you've rolled 23 and, and it's plus this and you've rolled that and then yeah. we just cross, just let me cross reference and that's, right, that's a B. Now B, what does B, let me just look at the table and B is this and that. And then the problem then is crunch is detracting from the excitement of the fight, so yeah. that, you know you constantly, I mean the, and that that's the problem. But I see what it's trying to do, and it is kind of a noble attempt to try and, and do that, you know. But it, it just falls flat a little bit. I accept, I accept as well with some of this. The modifications are, um, I nearly said ridiculous, but that destroyed my own argument. But, I, I but there's an element of that it, to it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. About um, you know, do you get a modification on movement range, yes. uh, type of weapon? Yeah, yeah I mean, uh, there's something. There's a, there's a little. It's not a table. But it's a list of uh, modifications for drawing a weapon. So yes. that you, if you draw it from a shoulder holster, it's 
minus something and then if it's a pocket it's less and yeah. if it's this it's that and you think oh come on I mean I keep it you could just have a yeah you just have a modifier for drawing a weapon that's all you really need I think that's yeah. the thing it goes a bit too far yeah. in crunch and that's the problem yeah I think uh, interesting game terms in both those sequences as well is that um, games master intervention because the non-player characters intervene yes yeah, so uh, yeah. fade on away and uh, yeah, yeah, is it yeah. Eva Green? Yeah. They step in, don't they, and, yeah, and turn the balance. Yeah, shift the balance. Shift bit, the yeah. balance yeah. In, in there. So there you go. Anyway, that's uh, that's our two sequences. The, you know, in the the Robert Redford scene, yeah. you know what you should do, shouldn't you? You should um, beat the postman to death with a table. <laughs> that for an improvised weapon. Use a table, Robert. There's a lot of them about in espionage. <laughs> okay on that note I think we should say uh, remind uh, listeners to uh, make a note of uh, these two sequences because we'll get a chance to uh, mm. vote on these uh, the next um, spy RPG we're going to look at in a, uh, in a few months time is Mercenary Spies and Private Eyes okay, okay. goodbye goodbye there isn't another bit well I'll just close the file on this top secret episode Please don't accept it from the courier if the seal is broken. Thanks to Simat and Andrew Smith for their help in this episode. I also recommend the Dead Game Society podcast too for their interview with Rasmussen. I really want to run a game of Top Secret because plays the thing and I'm currently arranging the next online grog club session for patrons. The podcast will always be free, but we run a Patreon campaign to support other activity. To find out more, follow the link on thegrognardfiles.com. We have some new Patreon supporters at the $5 level. Under a new backing level, they are now known as Armchair Adventurers with a three-piece suite and a luxury poof. I like to roll the $5 backers something appropriate from a table as a virtual gift and when it comes to top secret there is an embarrassment of riches available however i don't think it's appropriate to roll on the execution table so i'm going to reach for this bundle module instead and that came with the box set so uh, this is shrecken holland stella that we've been talking about and i'm going to roll on the legends and tips table so you've given me a tip now it's my turn to give you one. I'll uh, just give you a warning that some of these might be red herrings. Okay, let me find a dice. Okay, and here goes. So, first up is the artist Things Happen, who's made a contribution. So, thank you. And I'll just uh, roll a 12. Okay, a 12. A wizard in the basement of a bar knows that you're here. And who you are. That's right, a wizard. So, thanks, uh, things happen. Next is Lee Carnell. Okay. And I've rolled 17. Okay. Make a bid at the massage parlour and you may get more than you bargained for. Well, hey. I hope you have a happy ending there, Lee. Thank you. Okay, finally... This time, it's John. I don't have any other details, but you know who you are, so thank you. Here we go. 
you get 20. A mechanical sea serpent inhabits the waterway. A mechanical sea serpent inhabits the waterway. Yeah, some of these are definitely fishy. Okay, thank you very much for that. If you join the Patreon at any level, you'll get a link to uh, a download of the PDF of the zine, the Grognard Files Annual 2017. Thanks to David Patterson for pledging $2 a month, Juho Rutler for pledging uh, $1.5, and Dale Hewson and Tim Olson for pledging a dollar. Tim Olson will be my guest in the next episode, which is a two-parter all about Citadel Miniatures and Games Workshop stores. Don't worry, we're strictly pre-slaughter. Tim was the manager of the Dalling Road branch and he has some great memories and great stories to tell about the Games Workshop back in the day. Until then, adios amigos.